long sessions at hardening up come practice scrimmages, the testing of new plays, and an occasional mud pack not designed to improve the beauty of the wearer. A player has to be tough, for the pigskin season seems to be getting longer and longer. How long it's been since we've Westboro? Do you know how long? Do you, have, do you know how long it has been since you've been here? Well, if I'd had to take a guess, I would say right in the neighborhood of one month. It has been so long the Pac-12 doesn't even exist anymore. It's not even a thing. That's how long it's been. I feel like no, it's, no, been, no, it's been true, an eternity. Not true. Oregon State and Washington State are still holding the it Pac-2 down. does not. <laughs> you can't. Uh, to be fair, though, it will be extremely easy weight. to become conference champions next year, all I'm saying. Second point, major historical events here in the world of football have happened to coincide with our presentation of Duck history. Uh, so I, I think that's rather that's rather interesting. Fortuitous timing, I would say. Fortuitous indeed. I think a recap is in the weather. So basically what happened was uh, Oregon, you, you owe the Skucks, my, my beloved Ducks, they, they, they said, oh, wait. We can get a couple more dollars from the Big Ten, and we can, like, hang out with the cool kids. We're going to do that. You know, you know that century of tradition we had? Flush it down the toilet. We're going to go Oregon's hang out. transition to college football blue bloods was complete. <laughs> uh, it's, the, it's the apex of the long climb for the Ducks to be considered to be considered, you know, elite. Uh, uh, I think the only thing bigger than this would be if the SEC had said, come on over. Uh, Ducks and Washington and USC, UCLA were already going. Anyway, point is, um, the Ducks are never going to win another conference championship, and now they got to go all the way to Ohio for all of their sports. So, really dumb decision, frankly, I think. We'll see how it plays out. But, this is the end of an era of, of Duck football, which is great because we can... Uh, we, we can put that with put the put the history within that with that that within that context. I can't say words at the moment. This may very well be the last year of Pac-12 football. May very well be the last uh, Civil War game. Actually, that'll be interesting. Well, I think they have those games scheduled out for at least a no, seasons. no. Actually, it's uh, they have it scheduled this year, but of course next year the Ducks are going to a different conference. I highly doubt. They're going to schedule non-conference games with Oregon State. Why would they do that? That doesn't make no sense. Well, you have to you have to understand that such a thing as a future schedule exists. No, no, I get what you're saying, McLean, but I don't I don't think it's going to happen, um, first of all. Because second of all, they got to completely redo all the schedules anyway because they're in a different conference now. For sure, for sure. Anyway, all that being said and out of the way, McLean, where have you been, actually? Uh, I don't know. Just been hanging out. <laughs> Just keeping Caden's floor warm? Is that the idea? Yeah, trying to. Just a warm body. Keeping the carpet down. What's it like being hired as a pillow? You know, <laughs> I really, I I thought I could come up with a good pun there, but... You couldn't. Um, what's this TV station job, by the way? Because it, so far, from what I've seen, from what you've told me, it looks like your job with the TV station is basically to watch... Watch the camera feeds? You know, that's that's about it. I'm getting trained on KPVI here with a couple different positions. One of them is a camera operator. So for the morning newscast, I will go in and I will operate the cameras. I'm, I'm job shadowing at the moment, but I will cue the, the newscasters, the, the anchors, uh, the meteorologists about the, the time they have. 
Uh, I will I will adjust the cameras, the zoom, the focus, all of that. And then there's also the job of master control room, which consists of playing our local commercials in between nationally syndicated programming. Um, and so that does basically consist of just watching TV all day. Not a bad game. And they pay you for that. They did. I got I got paid to watch the the Notre Dame uh, Navy game last week, <laughs> which you know sounds pretty good and all until you realize just how boring that game was. You know what I'm saying? I was looking at uh, this was what this 191918 game, uh, Civil War game. Uh, students at Corvallis have all been wearing smear Oregon buttons all week. Friday night they're playing a big rally, but the game ended up ending in a scoreless tie. 1921, Bell Field was built with a, a large steel ties back in the day. Large steel grandstand in connection with the varsity field in Corvallis. I think we already covered that. Oh, so something I forgot to mention last week. We're diving back into the history of the Ducks here. Something I forgot to mention last time was that there was a game very early on. I think it was late 1890s. Wish you had the game in front of me, but um, the Ducks lost to uh, Multnomah. Was it Multnomah State? It was one of the. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, one of those Portland teams. Uh, they lost so badly, and they were so demoralized. They uh, disbanded the football team. They called it quits. Shut the program down. We're all done here. We had <laughs> Oregon run. State basically had to come along and 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 talk them out of it so that they could play in the Civil War. But I, I find that funny. I just find that really funny. The Ducks have always, they've always been like that. <laughs> just like over dramatic, like, well, shut it all down. I guess we're done for. Fire the coach, cut the entire team, <laughs> sell the locker rooms. Yeah. I just, I find that funny. All right, let's see here. We left off 1921, 1922. Oh, the dudes in the hayseeds. I don't know why. I guess dude was slang for like a, like a, uh, uh, not not necessarily a cool guy, but a city slicker, a dude. I don't know, but that was like a nickname uh, for the ducks uh, back then. But anyway, the dudes, interesting, because I know like dude ranches, the cowboys, cowboys would call like city slickers dudes. <laughs> Maybe it was just a misspelling of ducks. Have we considered that possibility? Perhaps. Um, Washington, who also are backstabbing traders joining the Big Ten next year, uh, they were known as the Sun Dodgers. The Sun Dodgers. Before I, 1922. I'm just looking at this random I guess fact. that makes guess, sense, being in Seattle. It's cloud. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. That's sort of out of the box of the name, though. The, the craziest part that. about that, Jake, was that Washington and Oregon worked together to leave the Pac-12. Uh, and that... Double just, backstab. Well, yeah. It pointed out that not only did they backstab the entire Pac-12, but also the fact that Oregon was making a bold declaration and saying we are not rivals with Oregon State. Our main rival is with Washington's a real rival. I've always that's always gotten under my skin because it's just like, it's like I, I mean, it's like I've been saying on uh, this uh, little history thing. Wh- Oregon really hates that we're their rival. Yeah, go they ahead. really don't like having <laughs> us around. Really hate it. <laughs> we're the annoying little brother, um, and they, they'd much rather be rivals with Washington. That's who they really want to be rivals with. And so Oregon and Washington both did a sort of double backstab on their other, their in-state rivals. Which, this whole thing wouldn't be nearly as bad if it, if it had been like the Washington schools leaving or the Oregon schools leaving. But the fact that it's one from both just throwing the other one under the bus is just annoying. Gosh, man. Let's see, we already talked about uh, Shy Huntington, he was a star player for the Ducks, or I, I'm sorry, the Lemon Yellows, that was their nickname, what were they called, the Web Feet, that's right, the Web Feet, 
Uh, I think I did mention, did I mention that Newt, Newt Rockney used to do like summer summer coaching lessons with Oregon he did. State? He did I think mention I did. that. Yeah. Which which explains a lot when you consider the fact that Oregon State is undefeated against Notre Dame all time. Uh, that was each summer from 1925 to 1928. Rockney was in the latter stages of his Notre Dame career, where he coached the legendary Four Horsemen. He made visits to Corvallis because of a friendship with three men, Aggie coach Paul Schisler, ex-OAC player and coach Sam Dolan, and Michael Dad Butler, the school's head track coach. Dolan had started in football in Notre Dame in the early 1900s. Butler knew Rockney as a boy and served as the young man's coach at the Chicago Athletic Club, where Butler was the manager. Schisler's Lombard College team had lost only 14 nothing in the Notre Dame at 23, Rockney had written a letter of recommendation to get Schleschler the job at OAC. When the, Aggie, when the Aggies went cross-country to beat New York University 25-13 to, to end the 1928 season, Rockney made the 180-mile trip from South Bend to Chicago to visit with Schleschler during the Beavers' workout there en route. Maybe Rockney's presence helped the Aggies win the Civil War in 28. No, wait, no, they won 24-13 in 1925, 16-0 in 1926, 21-7 in 1927, uh, before losing in 1928. Had a three-game streak there. That's pretty good. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, 19, 1927 uh, summation of the Civil War. <clears throat> Howard Maple, the slippery fat boy who plays quarterback for OAC, is a football contradiction. Not that he's not a great player, ho ho, that he certainly is. This year particularly, but he doesn't look like a great player, nor does he look like a great quarterback. Maple isn't fast. He's roly-poly, chunky, short-legged. <laughs> well, they're going in on him. <laughs> that sounds like, uh, what's his name, describing Darnold. <laughs> Trunky, uh, West, West Coast athlete. Trunky. He has none of the sylph-like grace of Gibby Welch or George Guttormson. He is not over five foot seven. To look at him, you'd think here's the typical running guard, for he is of the blocky type, like William Walter Scription of Gonzaga, though the latter isn't quite so fat. Yes, fat. Maple. It was a different time. Maple weighs at least 175 pounds, more likely with scale 185. If he's fat, McLean, I think you and I are in trouble. <laughs> Not lack of condition, he's fat. Obese. For no athlete trains more faithfully, just a natural fat boy. <laughs> he's just a natural fat boy. Fat shaming, man. Um, let's see here. The uh, Oregon quarterback at that time was Johnny Flying Dutchman Kitzmiller, who uh, was a much faster, but anyway, they lost that year. Oh, this must have been in like the, the 30s. No, this must have been, this was in the 40s. They're, they're jumping ahead. This book is all over the place. It really annoys me. Um, but they're talking about a game in the in the. 40s, I think, where, um, yeah, you wouldn't have turned a cow out to grass or a dog out to die on the kind of day this was, or the muddy morass of a football field in Corvallis on which Oregon State and Oregon played their 50th annual football game. After one slide in the gooey gumbo, gooey gumbo, the players' numbers were smeared out, the uniforms became a mass of sticky mud, they resembled giant frogs leaping around in a bog. Reminds me of the end of the, uh, Leatherheads movie. Exactly. That's good football right there. Artificial turf has ruined the sport. I Domes, want, man. Don't I want get me started on how much. Turf. 
And for I them to hate, just hose the field down before every game. I hate playing football in domes. I don't care what you say, you Idaho people out there. Domes are the worst thing that ever happened to football. Football should be played on a grass field on a snowy day with a couple of rickety old bleachers on the sides. That's, God that's intended, how they do it. God intended football to be played in a couple of empty potato warehouses, and I will not be walking that statement back. I highly doubt that. Uh, but with both teams stumbling around on pe- slippery bell field, a wise guy at the stands yelled, Get the ball to Pesky! He'll hold on to it! Uh, Pesky, who, um... Who did Pesky play for? I'm, I'm losing it. Must must have been a beaver. I don't know really long enough to be... Oh, he uh, handled the ball long enough to be branded forever as the man who, quote, held the ball. It was a funny line, but to be fair to Pesky, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. I'm confused. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> oh, that was uh, 49. Sorry, that was 1949. That was the year that was. But anyway, we're getting way ahead of ourselves here. Don't know why. We were on 1923. Yeah, we got some we got some sparse sparse twenties information here. Let's see, nineteen twenty-four, uh, Oregon won seventy-three against Oregon Oregon Agricultural on a wet sawdust covered bell field. OAC would have six coaches in six years until Paul Schichler took over in nineteen twenty-four, as recommended by Newt Rockney, for a successful nine-year run that ended with Lon Steiner's hiring in 1933. Yeah, six coaches in six years. I think I think in that era of college football, coach was much less of a uh, of a of a position that you hired someone for, and it was more of a uh, hey, does uh, does anyone want to be a a college football coach this year or what? Yeah, in the 1920s, we finally got into the era where you just hired a guy to be your coach and he just stayed on for a while. College yeah. football coach, you can't make a living at that. Shai <laughs> um, Huntington departed after the 1923 season. Oregon would find some success under John Cap McEwen, the man who coined the term Civil War. From the years of 1926 to 1929, the Webfoots moved into a new era under Prink Callison beginning in 1932. Uh, and then Lon Steiner got hired at Oregon State in 1933. The result was a collision of powerhouses and a memorable Civil War game. Uh, the Civil War, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, uh, 1927, the UO student body voted Ducks as the official school's nickname. Many sports writers, however, continued to call the school's athletic team the Webfoots until the 1960s. Come on, guys. Respect the duck name. Respect it. The ducks. A fierce, intimidating creature. (laughs) Um, In 1927, OAC became known as the Oregon State Agricultural College, which was then shortened to Oregon State College in 1937. By this time, the nickname Beavers was becoming established, although the media was referring to them as the Orange Men until well into the 60s. Uh, the it was a weird men. time. It wasn't really up until the 60s, and I think the NFL kind of spurred the move towards branding, quote-unquote, having a name and having a logo, that kind of thing. Until then, it was just like the nickname, and it was just sort of official, but like nobody really respected it. Yeah, it is kind of an odd thing because it's taken for granted now, but if you think about it, it's like... Well, yeah, why would they just give themselves a name and, like, a logo? Yeah, I mean, we're just, we're the Oregon, we're the Oregon State team. That's who we are. What's your nickname? Oh, we're the, we're a bunch of farmers. So, yeah, we're, we're the, the farmers. The Aggies, you know, we're from an agricultural college. Yeah, nickname wasn't really much of a, much of a brand name. But anyway. Nicknames, hey. logos, branding. You trying to sissify this sport? 1927, man. That was the, uh, that was the year that, uh, the Oregon, Oregon State really, really, took that step up into becoming what we 
smell them today. I mean, Oregon State became Oregon State instead of Oregon Agricultural. That's right. Interesting. So, yep, 1927, the Ducks versus OS. Oregon State hired its first long-standing coach in Paul Schistler, who is known on the Corvallis campus as the Little Fire Eater. The Little Fire I would like Eater. some explanation on that. Interesting. <laughs> uh, Schistler arrived after two seasons at Tiny Lombard College in Illinois, where his 1923 team had outscored foes 441 to 14. He was hired in 1924, stayed through 1932, suffering losing seasons in his first year and his last year. In 1929, he faced the player he considered the greatest halfback on the Pacific Coast in Oregon's six-foot, 165-pound Johnny Kitzmiller. The one man who compares at all is Irv Moeller of Southern California. Schistler said, "Kitzmiller is a star at everything." He shines on defense as much as offense. I admire the way he takes chances. The flying Dutchman, Johnny Kitzmiller, did do everything. Ran, pass, kick, punch, and returned cunt putts. Against OSC, Kitzmiller kicked a field goal and set up a seal. He was their Jack Coletto, man. <laughs> this guy does everything. Oregon beat him 60-0 that year, ending the, uh, the streak of Oregon State victories. Um, but he was carried off the field after a punt return on the final play of the first half. It was a real grim. It was a grim touch of real war as he was placed on the stretcher and carried to the hospital. Kitzmiller may never play football again, wrote the paper. Uh, after physicians examined X-ray photographs, the fracture was such it will take several weeks to mend, and the injury may be permanent. Physicians declared. Uh, McEwen left after the 1929 season to accept the head coaching position at Holy Cross. He would eventually serve two seasons as head coach of the Brooklyn Dodgers of the NFL. That's on Brooklyn Dodgers of the NFL. Ah, uh, that famed NFL team, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Look at them get moved. Ironically, he was succeeded by Schistler, who left OSC after the 1932 season to begin a four-year run as head coach in the NFL, the first two years with Chicago Cardinals and the next two with Brooklyn. Uh, C.W. Doc Spears took over at UO for two seasons. Kitzmiller, as a senior in 1930, has returned to action with a flourish, rushing for 162 yards, blah, blah, blah. Kitzmiller had pulled a tendon in an ankle when he caught his foot in a drain hole against the Bruins and was limited. They just had, like, open holes on the field. That seems dangerous. They just had holes in the field. There were pipes going around. It was all mud. And not a single logo in sight. College football was, was anarchy back in the day. Limited to two plays in the Aggies. Well, they were the Beavers by this point, right? Nobody, nobody can see. Anyway, uh, 15-0 victory. A game featuring a Pacific Coast record 51 punts. Storms had pelted the area. And in the week prior to the game, OSC had brought in a pair of Joe Bedcovers Jr. tarps used on Portland's Vaughn Street Baseball Park infield. Even that Nothing didn't hold this the makes rain. sense. I don't understand. <laughs> Even that didn't hold off the rain. The ground was dry for a while, but it took some mighty manpower to pull the twins off the gummy field. In an era when punting on second or third down wasn't unusual, Oregon punted 25 times for an average of 29 yards. Oregon State 26 times for an average of 36. Oregon State's Wild Bill McCallop blocked a pair of Steve Fletcher punts in the first quarter, etc., etc. Uh, I guess we're out of the 20s now, huh? When did... Hold on. Pacific Coast Conference was 1915, right? Because when I was looking up... Um, the history of the Pac-12. They they seem to claim, even though it officially disbanded in the 50s, they seem to still claim the PCC as part of as part of the Pac-12. Like that's that's what we were, and we just I like changed the so. name. It's kind of like a I don't know when a when a football team claims the history of a of a team that technically disbanded before it. <laughs> Browns. 
Uh, not uh, quite 19... the same. I was thinking more like the, the Edmonton Elks. Say that the okay. 1920s Edmonton Elks team was theirs, even though that was technically a separate organization. Yeah. Yeah, it's like I was saying. It's like the Ducks coaches. They're not... It's not like a... It's not like a history of failure. I think it wouldn't really be funny if it was a history of failure. It's in, in the same way that, like, you look at teams like, um... I don't know. The, uh... The Browns aren't funny. I mean, they're kind of funny, but they're not funny in the same way that something like the Atlanta Falcons is funny. You know what I mean? If they're just bad all the time, if the entire history is just... They're just garbage all the time. There's nothing funny about it. Uh, well, it's, Drake, it's the teams. It's the teams that are just good enough to think that they're better than they are, to strive for something great, and then fall flat on their face. The Cleveland Browns theory, anyway. pre-1990s refounding were actually... The Cleveland Browns pre-Super Bowl era were good. Well, yeah, but th- that's not... The, they weren't the same team, though. The Cleveland Browns, quote-unquote, became the Baltimore uh, Colts, right? The Cleveland Browns became the Baltimore Ravens because the Baltimore Colts moved away oh, from right, the city right, yeah. in the middle of the night. I think my point still stands anyway. But anyway, back to uh, Duck coach John McEwen. He would go in the history books as the man who came up with the phrase, the Great Civil War, before the 1929 game in Eugene. Hey, that's a good idea. They should probably, they should name the uh, Oregon-Oregon State rivalry that. That'd be pretty cool. Instead of calling it the Rivalry Series, kind of a bland name. Should give, it a, worry, give it's, it a punchy name, you know? It's over now, so... No, don't really need the name. I don't know. That's like the it's like the last little <clears throat> bit of humiliation. It's like we yanked the name away, and then two years later we yanked the game away. Huh, it's sad now. Compared to the last time we were recording the Duck History, this is like a post-mortem on the series now. I don't know. I mean, the future, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen, but things, things are weird. I don't know what to expect. Yeah, anymore. now that the Ducks are going to become Big Ten champs, it's, it's just not as funny. <laughs> oh, man, they're on their way. Phil Knight, he's he's finally... Well, it's way too early in the story for Phil Knight. Why are we jumping ahead? Sorry, sorry. I guess we're out of the 20s now. 1930s, baby, here we come. Brand new decade. Wow, we're really moving along now. Uh, 1931. I think 1931 was going to be... The 1931 was the last time that the game would be scoreless until, I think, the 70s with... With the toilet bowl. I heard a lot. When I was a kid, and uh, Oregon State football was just getting good again, you know, with uh, Dennis Erickson, Jonathan Smith as the quarterback, um, I heard, I'd heard a lot about the toilet bowl years, and I didn't quite know what it meant until I looked it up at some point at the school library. Apparently, there's just there was a game in the 70s that was so bad, and then, and then a nothing-nothing tie, and they call it the toilet bowl. That's, it was almost like, that's almost like when... The University of Idaho beat Idaho State 14-0 two years ago after both head coaches got fired. <laughs> yeah. But 1931 would be the last time they played a scoreless tie until the toilet bowl. Uh, it was at a wet Hayward field, which was the Ducks field. I think we covered that. Must have been a spectator's delight. Oregon State finished with 61 total yards offense. Oregon with 104. The Webfoots still have the best. Why? Why? I don't understand why this is. The book is still calling them the Webfoots. They already changed the name in 1927. But anyway, the Ducks had the best scoring chance, moving to the OSC five-yard line in the first quarter after recovering a fumble but didn't score. Oregon State played a safe game, often punting on first or second down. Why would you punt on first down? Jake, don't you know field position is more important than possession of the ball? I understand that theory, but I heartily disagree. I, I heavily, heavily disagree. <laughs> um, I feel back like... Back in the day. Back in the day, I'm telling you. I'm telling people you. People were a lot more uh, cowardly back in the day with that kind of... It's weird. So, 
the evolution of football, you look back at the early days, it's this weird mix of sometimes they're coming up with these crazy trick plays that people are getting killed and they're doing just absolutely insane stuff. And then other times it's like nothing's happening. Well, I was <laughs> like, actually too cowardly to even try. I was going to bring that up earlier because I just found out today that in November of 20, er, 1919, uh, so this week Idaho State plays Utah State in Logan, Utah. And 104 years ago, in 1919, we lost to Utah State 137 to zero. So you had games <laughs> like that, and then games that Bro, were you got, scoreless you got, ties. You got Heisman. You got Georgia Tech. We did. Not quite. Not quite. But close. Uh, but you'd also have games that would end in scoreless ties. So just absolute chaos. Nothing made any sense. There was no rhyme or reason to anything that happened. And everyone had fantastic nicknames. Uh, the teams were had no identities. Great stuff. <laughs> great, great stuff. Oh, tell me about the the board. I already forgot what that was, but uh, well, I forgot what it was too, and I don't know if I'm gonna be able to find it. But it was some it was some kind of like long distance uh, scoring thing, like a teleboard. So it was like this scoreboard that they set up in the auditorium. Uh, that would light up, and so it would show you what's happening on the game. So yeah, I saw a picture that, of the one at Oregon State. Yeah, the folks at Oregon State would receive and updates this was on the, the game through telegraph and then light up 20s, parts of the board. 30s? Was this the 30s? I think it was the 20s or 30s. Yeah. I, I don't have that nearby, so I don't know if I'm going to be able to find that. <laughs> well, I was the idea there that... Um, well, I assume they could get the radio broadcast. I think it was right? basically—I don't know. I think it was basically like watching, like watching the game cast on like ESPN, except well, a yeah, bit more. Because I remember back in the day, I used to be one of those early apps uh, for Oregon State football. I downloaded in like 2013 or something, and they would do the thing where you weren't watching the game. It was like a—it was just like a graphic of a football field, and they would place the ball where the ball was in the yeah, game. Yeah, that's what ESPN does. Yeah, but that's basically what this board was back in the day. Someone was, if I have this right, someone was getting the score over like a teletype or, or not teletype, but over a wire or something. Some way they were transmitting the score to them, maybe by Western Union Telegraph yeah, <laughs> or wire or whatever. That's um, basically it. Because if they were doing it, if the guy who was putting the score up on the board was getting the radio broadcast, why wouldn't they just play the radio broadcast, right? I don't mm. know. Well, I don't anyway. know how how long or like how far radio broadcast would stretch. Well, I mean, even back in the day, you'd have the national networks, and they oh, they played the Civil War game in Portland a few times in the thirties, thirty three, thirty four, and thirty eight. Wonder why? Yeah, it's really weird that they would they would just because Portland they they had a pretty good football team uh, in those early days, uh, Multnomah. Um, they beat the Ducks quite a few times, uh, but. Portland isn't exactly known to, for their uh, for their football these days. I mean, they got Port- Portland State Vikings, right? You don't I say. don't think yeah, uh, the Portland State really Vikings as, are an FCS team in the Big Sky, and they just lost to the Ducks eighty-one to seven this last Saturday. Yeah, that's not great. <laughs> it's not great. Um, Ghost Ducks, though. Ghost Ducks. Oh yeah, Ghost Ducks. Bo Nix, man. You seen the billboards? You seen the? Uh, He's bodacious. They took out ads on all the web. All every sports website now has a banner ad that says "Bo Deja." Was that so? Was the uh, the building size one? They're doing a Joey Harrington this year, man. They, they, that's the last time I remember them doing that. Where was that? Uh, the two buildings. One building had Bo on it. The other building just had his arm. <laughs> what was that about? Uh, that I couldn't really. I couldn't tell you. 
I don't know what optical illusion they were trying to go for there. An on-field fistfight during the 1934 Civil War resulted in expulsion of players from both teams, Oregon's towering Alex Eagle and the Aggies' Jack Brandis. There's some All-American names right there. Just what started it, nobody seemed to know, and not even the players, wrote William Lair Hill, who became sports editor of the Oregonian They didn't need a reason to fight back in the day. There had just been a timeout for the Webfoots, who had the ball in their own 33 after an 8-yard dash by Murray Van Vliet. Frank Mitchell on a crunch applied three yards to a first down as referee Nibs Price galloped forward to down the ball. He was noticed to hesitate an instant, apparently to caution two linemen who were still struggling after the whistle had blown. Eagle got to his feet and said something to Brandis. Whatever the remark, it drew a retort from a discourteous Tommy Swanson, who at this point came to support his teammate Brandis. In full view of the stands and officials, Eagle suddenly lashed out his right fist and smacked Swanson in the nose. Back with the Oregon State tackle for a clean knockdown. Before the officials could break in, Swanson jumped on Eagle's back. Players for both teams converged in a swirly mass about the combatants as the officials tried to pry their way through. Coach Prink Callison ran off the field from the Oregon bench, in front of which it all happened. Callison caught Eagle by the neck. The other players of both sides seemed to be trying to stop hostilities and separate the fighters, but a wild blow or two went home in the mix-up and didn't take much to set them all at each other. But, but Bryce got there before too much damage was done and soon had control. Nibs banished Eagle and Brandis, since Swanson out with Brandis. Uh, Brandis was averted to have opened hostilities by taking the first swing, etc., etc. Uh, yeah, anyway. Um, what was that? 1934-37, Oregon State's 14-0 victory before a Hayward Field record crowd of 18,000 triggered perhaps the wildest post-game theatrics in Civil War history, covered through OSU legend Bud Osei's eyewitness account. An unidentified Oregon State student later recounted the genesis of the uprising. So two days <laughs> the after genesis the genesis of the uprising, <laughs> two days after Oregon State's victory, hundreds of celebratory Oregon State students caravaned to Eugene for a little rub it in time, which boomeranged into an all-time Donnybrook. Time magazine labeled it the Lark. Time magazine called it the largest riot in the history of intercollegiate football. <laughs> Oregon students, taking offense at the visitor's hubris, uh, ducked, not dunked, but ducked many of them in the Eugene Mill race, and even took a group of them to Skinner's Butte for a little color recalibration of the giant yellow O, which had mysteriously turned orange. Now that's what we need at Skinner's Butte again. I've been up there a few times now, and I think it could use a little bit of orange. Uh, unidentified student recounted the, uh, yeah. Uh, we came out of the men's gym on Monday morning, and a string of cars was coming towards us with the loudspeaker shouting, No school today! They announced they were going to Benton Lane Park, and there was a band there, and we could spend the day there. My roommates got into the Model T topless tour car and filled it up. The next car was full of girls, and I got on the right front fender and used the headlamp to hang on. When we got to Benton Lane Park, now that's a classic college scene right there, hanging onto the running board as you drive down the street in your Model T. No one was around. The lead car had a loudspeaker and announced we were going to go to Eugene and circle around Hayward Field, honking our horns and singing Oregon State's fight song, and then head back home. When we got near Santa Clara, the state police stopped us and asked what we were going to do. The leaders replied, uh, just go to Eugene and uh, go around Haywood Field and then uh, come back. The police asked, are you going to get into a fight? The answer was no. So they let us go. No state police were with us when we got to Eugene. You, aren't, you guys aren't carrying any contraband fan materials, are you? What's this up? That's crazy, man. Horn? Back then, 
Uh, Santa Clara is just part of Eugene now. It's it's grow it's subsumed everything around it. But uh, back then, Santa Clara and Eugene were two different towns. Oh, they must have been driving down River Road to get there. Uh, anyway, as we were going past the movie theater on West 11th, a Eugene sand and gravel truck came up into the lead car and stopped it. We all then stopped. University of Oregon students were there and grabbed all the boys in the Model T Ford, took them to the mill race, and threw the beavers into the water. <laughs> I got out of the car and stood by the theater to see what was going on. When I saw my roommates thrown into the mill race, I decided I'd seen enough. A short time later, a Model A Ford came up the street singing the Oregon State fight song. I was with two OSC boys, and we held our hands up for help. The car slowed down. They took their when they took their arms down. We found out it was a University of Oregon group. They grabbed one of the fellows with me, and I ran toward them and took a swing at one of their chins and missed. Two of them came at me, and I ran a good quarter of a mile. I had only one still after me, and I was getting winded. I found a six foot two by four, a six foot two by four with a spike in the end. I let the runner keep coming. When he was almost about to jump me, I jumped out with the club. He turned around and ran back the way he came from. We walked about two miles out of Eugene toward Junction City, and a car stopped and asked if he'd like a ride. It was two OSC grads who had a dairy in Junction City, and they had come to see what had happened. The student escaped Eugene for Corvallis with no further harm. Some of his peers were not so lucky. A large group of Oregon State students congregated at Seymour's Cafe on 10th and Willamette that day. The siege at Seymour's threatened for a time to become more than just clean fun when city, state, and county officers were called into response to a mob yelling, Take the beavers out! The staters made a tentative peace proposal just before they came out, but the offer was rejected. A melee such as Eugene has never seen before ensued. No one was seriously injured, although many a beefsteak will be bought for other than eating purposes. With officers stationed at both doors, the mob settled down to watchful, exciting waiting, but gave not an inch. The officers formed a corridor of uniforms and escorted about 50 Oregon State girls out of the restaurant amid the mob's derisive shouts. Then, when the male beavers stayed in the restaurant, there came a series of chants. Seymour's got a beaver, Seymour's got a beaver, unfair to Oregon, unfair to Oregon. Finally, the beavers came out and most of them were ducked in the mill race. I'd hate to be ducked, McLean. <laughs> I don't wanna. I don't, don't wanna be ducked. Don't duck me, bro. Don't, don't duck me, bro. Not the newspaper scut. reported. That's something. That is different. The newspaper reported that traffic up and down the length of Eugene's main streets were almost at a standstill. One wild-eyed partisan attempted to move a policeman out of the way and swung as the latter resisted. He was tapped with a nightstick. It was enough to quiet him. On Tuesday, said the Oregon State student who detailed the story, the whistle at OSC called for an assembly. Dr. George Peavy told all of us who had gone to Eugene that we had disgraced OAC and, oh sorry, OSC, different name these days, I keep forgetting, and given it a really bad name. He really sounded sincere. And then he finished and quietly said, I bet you all enjoyed it. <laughs> Good. He was, uh, Bud Osi was a student there, uh, part of that wild post-game incident in 1936. Um... After the 14-0 victory at Eugene, OSC students attending the game... Oh, wait, uh, yeah, so after the victory at Eugene, um, the first back-to-back -back triumph in years, OSC students attending the game rushed the field with the intent to tear down the goalposts. Being a brash young freshman, I was up there in the lead, OSC recalled. I had a brand new overcoat on that my folks had bought me for college. We got to the goalposts, and the Doug students came after us, and we got in fistfights. I had my coat ripped off and lost it, got bloodied up a bit, but it was a fun deal. When We had a great a time. Deal. I got I got soused celebrating that night. When I got back to my boarding house in Corvallis, my landlady caught me stumbling 
up the stairs and threatened to report me to the administration for being drunk. Um, is that yeah, a this crime is the, on uh, college campuses? We're alcohol? In, in college? Um, this is the uh, same year, by the way. This is just the same story told from a different uh, student. During the postgame melee, Oregon State students temporarily made off with Oregon's mascot duck. A real live duck! <laughs> Webford students retrieved the foul after a few harrowing moments. Sometime over the weekend, OSC students surreptitiously painted Oregon's yellow O at Skinner's Butte Orange. Even at that, the fun wasn't over. Uh, oh yeah, like we mentioned, on Monday, a large group of OSC students skipped school to go to Eugene. I hopped in the lead car, OSC said. We had about 15 to 20 cars. Uh, pretty soon we got a police escort because word got out that we were coming. Um, Oregon students arrived in Eugene to a hostile crowd of U.S. students. Uh, the beavers were pelted with rotten apples and tomatoes and drenched with fire hoses. O.C. said they were furious about the O at Skinner's Butte. They grabbed a hold of a bunch of beavers, took them up on the hill, stripped them to their underwear, and got big buckets of yellow paint. They physically took the guys, dumped them rear first, and then slid them down the O to paint it back to yellow. <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> That's what we call a ducking. We got you, you got ducked. <laughs> um, OC had unwisely chosen to wear a belt with a big Oregon State buckle. As he was walking down the street with a pair of OSC students, a group of UO students saw them and yelled, "Let's get those beavers!" We were able to cover up our Oregon State gear and started walking with them and yelling, "Yeah, get those beavers!" OC said, and it worked. They would have taken us to throw us in the mill race if it hadn't. What a Reports very, were, very 1920s story. That, uh, that uh, as many as 250 OSC students were, quote, ducked against their will with a cold <laughs> bath in Eugene Mill race. Against For a their spell, will. No one was volunteering to be ducked. About 50 students were held hostage at Seymour's Cafe before police arrived. After the wet, shivering students returned to Corvallis later that day, they did a serpentine dance to the school's commerce building. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. So it's a funny thing. People always think of uh, the 20s with the wild and crazy time, and then it was the 30s and the Great Depression, and everyone was sad. I don't know. A lot of the 20s was still going on in the 30s. It, it hadn't quite died yet, guys. How could you the be spirit... that depressed if you were getting... <laughs> if, if I was getting ducked, I'd be pretty depressed. <laughs> do not do the duck. Yeah, Oregon State had a good winning streak there. Tex Oliver would be the next Oregon head coach in 1938. Um, he would serve as head coach for all but one season through 1946. Uh, this must have been... I think Oregon had a... was not very good for a while there in the 30s. Uh, the Beavers entered the 1941 season. We're jumping ahead to 1941. Come on. Well, this is the Rose Bowl season, isn't it? Yeah, that's the Beavers' Rose Bowl season was 41. Let's see here. Anything going on in 1939? It's odd that we'd already be jumping into the 40s. Uh, I think Bud O.C. isn't alive anymore. They've, they've, they're quoting him a bunch here. In 1939, O.C. joined an O.S.C. booster club called the Buck of the Month Club, which became the Beaver Club in 1946. Only two original members remain today, O.C. and Dwight Quinsenberry of Salem. They're probably dead by now. Um, because this book is from, like... Uh, I think it's from, like, the first year of Mark Helfrich, so it's been, like, ten years. Eh, probably not around anymore. Wow, I am old. Yeah, no. Beavers had an outstanding season in 1939, going 9-1-1. Yeah, Lom Steiner was a good coach. He was a good coach for the Beavs. Uh, Bring him back, his ninth I season. Say. Yeah. 
Um, I think the 30s, like Oregon State was a, was finally like a really good football team in the 30s. Uh, 20s, they were okay. The early years, you know, everyone, it was like, it's, it's up and down in the early years. One year you're good, next year you're terrible because, you know, you had a new coach every year. But uh, yeah, by the time we get to um, consistent, like returning head coaches in football, Oregon State started out pretty darn good in the 1930s. Uh, the Ducks were pretty down at that time. But I will say this for the Ducks. Tex Oliver, that's a good name for a coach. Tex Oliver. Sounds like a, a real uh, Randolph Scott type of guy. From the Oregon State Annual, uh, the Beaver at year's end, laughed at by preseason d- dopesters when claimed his team would finish in the upper division of the Coast Conference, Steiner led experts out there say, kept faith in his boys, and handed the sporting world a winner. Oregon State opened the season with a heartbreaking 13-7 loss to Southern Cal in Los Angeles. Uh, the Beavers had twice driven deep into USC territory in the fourth quarter, once to the three-yard line. And then after a 7-0 loss the was- at Washington State, OSC was 2-2 two two after the first month of play, and any margin for error was gone. Then the Orangemen, using a stifling defense to full advantage, won four straight games via shutout. After knocking off Idaho, UCLA, California, and Montana, they went into the Oregon game with a 6-2 record and a shot at the Rose Bowl. Oregon provided a, si- di- a stiff challenge. Um, I guess we are in 1940 now. Okay, this must be 1940. Um, oh, no, 1941? Ah, I guess we're jumping ahead, apparently. We're in 1941. Uh, but after the uh, Webfoots, 19-16, why are they still calling them the Webfoots? Uh, anyway. But after their 1916 victory over Washington in the week before, Huskies coach Jimmy Fallon declared, Oregon has the finest material of any squad we've faced this season. I don't see how they have lost a single game. Maybe Felon's comment was a shot at Tex Oliver because Oregon was 5-3 at that point, having lost to Stanford, UCLA, and Washington State. Oregon had beaten Washington early in the year. Oregon State was riding the greatest one-two punch in school history, the D&D boys. The senior D&D boys. At senior halfbacks Don Durden and Bob Deathman. 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 D-E-T-H-M-A-N. OSC had a number of other stars, too, including quarterback George Peters, fullback Chalk Shelton, and center Quentin Greeno. The Orangemen faced a tough test to get a Rose Bowl nod. They needed to win on their arch-rivals' home turf. Oregon State and Stanford ended the final Saturday tied atop the PCC standings at 4-2, but OSC had beaten Stanford 10-0. The Indians ended the season against California. Oregon, led by star halfback Tommy Roblin, went into the game with a number of walking wounded. Oliver told the Eugene Dispatcher that the school should have moved its infirmary to MacArthur Court's football locker room. Due to all the injuries, Oregon drafted Colonel Bill Hayward for extra help in the rehab department. The venerable Oregon track coach, who served as trainer until three years ago, when he dropped all but his track coaching duties, offered his services to coach Tex Oliver and trainer Bob Officer. Hayward has long been famous for his ingenious braces made from odd bits of light metal, canvas, and sponge rubber. It was a different time. dangerous. Uh, he fashioned gadgets for the many duck cripples. In the lexicon of the day... players wearing gadgets? In the lexicon of the day, injured players are often referred to as cripples. It was, again, a different time. <laughs> hmm. General opinion around Eugene was that Oregon would win, Oregon's scoring power being the reason. We didn't feel like we were going to win the game, though we had some injuries, said Bob Koch, freshman fullback on Oregon team. In Corvallis, a ditch patch was headlined, Corvallis Campus Agog as Great Gigantic Nears. 
began the report. Oh, gridiron, okay, grid gigantic. <laughs> that is a, that's not a good headline. Began the report. The campus in town are burning with football fever and temperatures are soaring higher by the hour. Doctor, doctor, I got the football fever. Uh, but those responsible for all the fuss are calm and collected. A practice at both schools was behind tightly locked gates. There was not a single word from coaches, players, or managers. In the spirit of the day, Steiner went for the usual contact at practice. He sent his troops to a modified scrimmage, etc., etc. The cards are on the table, let the best man win, he said. By Thursday, all 20,000 tickets for the Civil War were sold out. Hotel rooms were as scarce as the tickets. The largest special train in the history of the Civil War, 18 cars, brought more than 800 people from Portland to Eugene aboard the Southern Pacific. The Oregonians Billy Stepp picked at Oregon State 14, Oregon 6. He must have known something, because Oregon State won 12 to 17. Sometime during the game at Eugene, word leaked that Cal had knocked off Stanford. This meant the Beavers could clinch the Rose Bowl berth and sole possession of the championship with a victory. Oregon State's battling Beavers clinched themselves a bit in the Rose Bowl, driving to a 12-7 victory in a thrilling gridiron gigantic witnessed by an overflow crowd of 20,500 wild-eyed fans, wrote the Oregonian. A gridiron gigantic. To Corvallis for the big game of the year in Oregon. Oregon versus Oregon State. The Beavers of State take to the air for a first down as Durton's evasive tactics are nearly enough. Look at him go. He nimble foots his way to the Oregon Five. From the two, Barry goes over for the TD. The Rose Bowl bound Beavers are ahead, seven to nothing. With the score knotted 7-7 in the second half, the Beavers spring hammock loose for 23 yards. Oregon State is rolling. Oregon did not make it easy. The Webfoots, with Roblin injured and exiting after the game's third play, led 7-6 in the fourth quarter. But the Orange men marched downfield for the game-winning drive, Joe Day scoring on a 28-yard run for the clincher. Old Man Atlas didn't do so much, L.H. Gregory wrote in reference to Day, the hero of the day. He only carried the world on his shoulders. <laughs> Alright, that's a little dramatic. Let's not. <laughs> Let's... Hey, McLean, everything was riding on that husky young man's back. Come on. Of course, that fat... <laughs> Fat man's back. Day ended up being the star of the game for Oregon State. He broke loose, uh, Koch, the linebacker. I can't remember if I had a shot at him, didn't get him. When it was over, the visitors were in the driver's seat headed, they thought, for Pasadena. Wrote Gregory, Don Durden, the hinge-hipped halfback whose All-American play stood out in the bruising battle, trotted tiredly onto the bench, sighed gratefully as an alert man she peeled off his jersey, flashed a grin, and said, Boy, am I glad that one's over. Oregon hit hard. Say, fella, said Durden, you'd think a steamroller was a cream puff after getting smacked by those big webfoots. They hit as hard as any club we faced, but they were awful clean. 23 skidoo. <laughs> Oregon State had dominated the statistical sheet, winning everything, blah, blah, blah. Oliver, in an act of sportsmanship, walked across the field after the game, grabbed Steiner's hand and said, Nice going, kid. Later, the Oregon coach added, They have fine balance, weight, and speed, and it'll be a pushover for no one. There's only one other team in the Oregon State I'd rather see in the Rose Bowl. That was the sentiment of most of the UO players, too. If it wasn't us that got in the Rose Bowl, I'm glad they got it. They were an Oregon team. They were good guys. Got to know Durden a little. After the game, we congratulated them. We didn't want them in the Rose Bowl. 
Yeah, support the, the Oregon team. <laughs> Guys, support the Pac-12. Also, the Pac-12 is going to backstab you and throw you to the walls. I always hated it. And like now, I for years, I've been saying support the Pac-12 is a stupid, stupid thing to say because I'm not... You're not a fan of the conference, you're a fan of your team. That was just a stupid thing to say. And now, now look who was right the whole time. Jake was. Come on. As long as you're humble about it. Anyway, two weeks later, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and U.S. military officials were worried about a possible invasion on the West Coast. They announced the Rose Bowl was to be closed, and the game would not be played in Pasadena. Oregon State Athletic Director Percy Losey immediately began looking for a site to relocate. Duke agreed to host the Rose Bowl in Durham, North Carolina, and thus resulted the transplanted Rose Bowl, the only time the granddaddy of them all was staged <coughs> away from Pasadena. Before a crowd of 56,000 Oregon State... You're telling me the one time the Beavers win the Rose Bowl is when it's I not know. in the Rose Bowl. Disrespect. Oregon State won 20-6 over a heavily favored Duke team that entered the game undefeated and ranked number two nationally. Jordan was the star, scoring the game's first touchdown, catching the 42-yard pass, but it was reserve flank back Gene Gray took the hero's role, racing 69 yards on the pass from Deathman for the winning touchdown in the fourth quarter. Like Deathman. The Oregon State traveling party on its way to the Rose Bowl departed on its five-day, 7,384-mile round trip via train, the Portland Rose, with Pullman Lounge and club car service, taking the northern route through Pocatello, Cheyenne, Omaha, hey, hey, Chicago, go. Pittsburgh, and Washington, D.C. The Beavers set up quarters on Chapel Hill on the University of North Carolina campus. Treated us very graciously with good taste before the game. There was a special program with both teams, the dignitaries in the big banquet hall. Bill Stern, who did the radio play-by-play -play of the game, was the master of ceremonies. Um, the determination was profound. Uh, so interviews with players who played in the game. Um, uh, this one, this guy named Landforce, who was uh, part of the Beavers team. I don't he didn't play in the game, but he was he suited up. Uh, Landforce, who served in the army in the European theater of World War II, always objected to the popularized nickname of the Oregon-Oregon State rivalry. I am totally against calling it the Civil War because the term war has no place in an athletic contest as far as I'm concerned. Good thing no one would bring up this objection ever again. <laughs> okay, man, come on. I've been to a war, therefore nobody can ever use a war to describe anything other than a war. Look, thank you for your service, Land Force, but I'm going to politely decline your offer to... Yeah, let me just say. Uh, oh, he, he goes on talking about the Civil War. As for what others call the Civil War, he at least identifies with the civil part of it. I remember the rivalry as a couple of good teams playing each other, he said. You're going to play as hard as you can and win or lose like a gentleman. You play with pride for your school against another good school. I don't remember any animosity toward the University of Oregon. Well, my senior year, some Duck students came to Corvallis and painted, painted green on the MU quad. As president of the student body, we stopped a group that wanted to retaliate of a prank nature because it did not show much class. All right, I... Land Force, this, this dude served in the army, but he's a total weenie. This dude is a weenie. Come on, man. Don't call it the Civil War. And then when uh, the, the Duck students come over in the 40s to, to paint the Memorial Union quad green, and, and the, the rest of the Beavers, they want to they wanna, they wanna pull a prank on them to get back. Oh, uh, fellows, 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 please. That would be of such low class. That is unbecoming of an Oregon State student such as us. <laughs> Ah, uh, yes, sir. 
I don't know. That's just not that's not the college spirit. I just uh, I don't like that. I don't know. Hold on, I might have completely missed a very important moment in the Oregon State history. Hold on, I got the dates all mixed up on this one. I always thought, because the, the, the photograph, because uh, I think they first did that in Portland, the famous photograph of the pyramid play, when I, whenever I look at it, I think like 20s or 30s. It does have a very Wild West 1920s uh, feel to it. Well, it wasn't the coach Lon Steiner, so... I'm, oh, okay, it was 1933, all right. It was uh, still Lon Steiner, though, so that's, that's probably why I was confused. It was ni 1933. Uh, the play originated as a playful prank during an OAC practice session. Oh, they were o OSAC at that time, Oregon State Agricultural College. Then they dropped the A a couple years later. Anyway, while the offense was practicing a place kick, the pranksters decided to give it a shot. Their prank was actually successful at blocking the kick. The defensive player is hoisted up by two other players in an effort to block the place kick attempted by the opposing team. Um, so I guess they... Ah, uh, I gotta look at that picture again. Do they hold him up by their hands, or is he, like, standing on their back? It's a goofy picture when you look at it. But it just encapsulates 1920s football. Yeah, it looks like they're, looks like they're uh, just holding him up. You can't tell, because there's one guy in the photograph that's sort of in the way of the legs, but it looks like they're literally just lifting him up by their feet. And it's just him swatting the, swatting the ball down. It was first used unsuccessfully in the game on October 28th against Washington State College, without much fanfare. It was then used again during the Civil War in 1933. Um, the Beavers had a 6'5 sitter named Clyde Devine and two 6'2 tackles named Harry Fields and Al Schwammel. The two tackles hoisted Devine upon their shoulders. With the combination of their height and Devine's long arm span, they succeeded in blocking one of Oregon's kicks. The play is probably the most notorious on-field shenanigan in the history of the Civil War. They also successfully used the play again to help defeat the Fordham Rams 9-6 on November 18, 1933. Oregon Journal staff photographer Ralph Vincent managed to capture the use of the play in the 1933 Civil War with his Grayflex camera. That's, I think that's the picture everyone's seeing. Yeah, that's it. Uh, in instantly, Vincent, his photo, and the OAC Beavers were thrust into national attention. The photo quickly appeared in the Saturday Evening Post and other Eastern newspapers. Discussion of the play heated up quickly with sports writers arguing whether the play was good or not for the game of football. Some simply labeled it a sports trick. I say During it was World very War good for the game of football. Yeah, McLean, here's a twist you weren't going to see coming. During the World War II, it was reported that Nazi Germany distributed copies of the image around Europe as an example of the brutality of American sports. I did not, I did not see the uh, the Nazis using the pyramid play as propaganda <laughs> coming. That was that's a new Oregon moment. State Beavers were were the Nazis' cartoonish image of brutal American sports. I, I feel like we should wear that with a badge of honor. But anyway, the, the play was banned after the 1933 season. I don't know why. I did, like what, it. Did the Nazis? Why? Did the Nazis get a hold of the NCAA? <laughs> the Nazis lobbied hard to get that banned. I don't know why they would have banned it, man. Frankly, I don't see the issue. They're ruining the game. <laughs> Those darn Nazis. We used to be a proper country. This used to be a real... <laughs> 
Uh, during the Oregon State's 39-2 route of Oregon in 1942, two Wepfords were put out of the game, Floyd Reed in the first quarter and Tommy Robble in the fourth, and it didn't end there, wrote the Oregonians L.H. Gregory. After the game, some of the red-hot lads of the two camps, forgetting all about warfare in foreign lands, created a brief incident with several fistic clashes on the field of play. This was after the teams had gone to the clubhouse, however, and it didn't last too long. Well, that was a civil game compared to the other ones. Only a few punches were thrown. Man, the Beavis was just good under uh, Steiner. Uh, the Beat Ducks again, 45-13-12. Bud Gibbs, he was... Okay, sorry. Hey, um, what gives, that name kept Bud coming up. Gibbs? The name kept coming up. Uh, Gibbs, a Hood River native, had chosen Oregon State over Oregon and Washington because of the history of Hood River athletes who had become Beavers, including blah, blah, blah. Uh, Steiner, Gibbs said, was a very good coach, very good with fundamentals. His team were very sound offensively, defensively, and he was a very good man. Like many players at Oregon State, Gibbs had started college because he wasn't old enough to be in the draft. After his freshman year, he went into the Army and played with the great Doak Walker on a Fort Sam Houston team in San Antonio that won the National Service Championship in 1946. He then re-enrolled at the OSC in 1947 and played there through 1949. He okay, that's that's what I was trying to figure out. He would later become a member of the coaching staff later on. Um, anyway, uh, Gibbs had great respect for Norm Van Brocklin, whom he played against for two years and later became friends with. Norm was one of the best, Gibbs said. What a blessing it was for him and blah blah blah. Norm Van Brocklin. That's 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 probably a good note to to end the 1940 segment on. This good old Van Brocklin. He was Oregon State's star player in the late 40s. After they, they had been good Oregon for a while. Star player. Sorry, Oregon star player. Oregon Ducks. Um, since the early years of Tex Oliver in the early 30s, Oregon had been through quite a few seasons of mediocrity when Jim Aiken took over as the head coach in 1947. Aiken had played for Washington and Jefferson's 1922 Rose Bowl team and had been head coach at Akron and Nevada before arriving in Eugene. He brought a T-formation offense to replace the single wing employed during the Oliver era. When Aiken arrived, he inherited a player named Norm Van Brocklin, a good but not great two-sport athlete at Acalinus High in Lafayette, California. He came to Oregon on the advice of his uh, teammates. Van Brocklin would tell the Oregon student newspaper, The Emerald, that he came along because his friend Bell was happier than a dead pig in the sun up here. I think that's how I describe Eugene, dead pig in the sun. What an odd thing to say. Van Brocklin had not been recruited by any California college after a stint to the Navy in World War II. Van Brocklin came to Oregon as a freshman in 1946. A passer, but not much of a runner, Van Brocklin didn't fit well in Oliver's single wing. He played 11 minutes total as a third-string tailback and did not earn a letter that year. One of his appearances came at the Civil War game when the Beavers won 13-0. Oliver had resigned as coach earlier, effective at the end of the season. It was a nasty day on a sloppy bell field as described in a game account by the Oregonians L.H. Gregory. Oh, I already read that. You wouldn't have turned a cow out to grass or a dog out to die on that day. Mud, the mud was ankle deep in more when... <laughs> Okay, the mud was ankle deep and more when some Oregon rooters went onto the field between halves with their famous duck mascot, Puddles. The poor bird squatted in the mud and actually tried to swim. <laughs> Puddles the duck, McLean. I, we haven't even talked about, where's, I had a whole presentation. We haven't even talked about Oregon mascot history, McLean. We've, this is the first known documented appearance of Puddles the duck. Wow, that's big. Oregon team was originally known as the Webfoots, etc., etc. 
applied to a group of fishermen from the coast of Massachusetts who have been heroes during the American Revolution, and their descendants... Okay, that explains it. I was wondering why this was. The descendants of those Webfoot soldiers uh, settled in the Oregon's Willamette Valley, and so the name stayed with them. A naming contest in 1926, won by Oregonian sports editor L.H. Gregory, made the Webfoot's name official, and a subsequent student vote affirmed the nickname, chosen others over other suggested nicknames such as Pioneers, Trappers, Lumberjacks, Wolves, and Yellowjacks. So that's a funny thing. I think what happened was... There are originally, I think there were the Webfoots, unofficially called the Webfoots, right? Because of the people, anyway. And then the the students voted on ducks in 1927, but then in 1932 they went back to Webfoots. <laughs> they they flip-flopped on that for a while, apparently. But uh, ducks with their webbed feet were associated with the team in the 20s, and a live white duck named Puddles began to appear at sports events. Journalists, especially headline writers, also adopted the shorter duck nickname. Yeah, it's just a real confusing time in the world of branding and mascots. Are we the ducks? Are we the web feed? Uh, in 1978, a student cartoonist came up with a new duck image called Mallard Drake, but the uh, students did not vote for that. Mallard dress, terrible. Okay, beginning in 1940, cartoon drawings of puddles in student publications began to slightly resemble Donald Duck. And by 1947, mm, Walt Disney say. was aware... By 1947, Walt Disney was aware of the issue. Oh no, here, they, here comes the corporation. Here comes Disney. Um, but actually, capitalizing on his friendship with Disney cartoonist Mike Royer, Oregon Athletic Director Leo Harris met Disney and reached an informal handshake agreement that granted the University of Oregon permission to use Donald as its sports mascot, naming him Donald Duck. I don't know, man. I just feel like that's like a cheap and easy way out to get yourself a mascot. Just, just grab Donald Duck. It's a very, very popular cartoon character. It's like, uh, you know, it's a funny thing I've noticed. I don't know if Disney just signed a deal or something, but like every football team, if you go into like a Fred Meyer or something and look for, you know, merch for the local teams, they all have like a some version of a shirt with Mickey Mouse on it. I know, it. even Idaho State does. Yeah, I, it was weird. I, I first noticed that with Oregon State when I saw an Oregon State shirt with Mickey in a helmet. I'm like, what is going on here? Man, it's weird. Anyway, Disney lawyers would later question the agreement in the 1970s when the university responded with producing a photo showing Harris and Disney wearing matching jackets with an Oregon Donald logo. Relying on the photo as evidence of Disney's wishes, in 1973, both parties signed a formal agreement granting the university the right to use Donald's likeness as a symbol for and restricted to Oregon sports. The agreement gave Disney control over where the mascot could perform and ensured that the performer inside the costume would, quote, properly represent the Donald Duck character. <laughs> I'm very concerned there. In 2010, Disney and the university reached an agreement that removed the Oregon Duck mascot from its association with the Donald trademark and allowed the duck to make much more public appearance. So what happened was, and first of all, the Oregon Duck mascot, you can kind of see what they're going for because it's like in the eyes, you're like, okay, it's kind of supposed to be like a cartoon duck, but it doesn't look like Donald Duck, first of all. Second of all... Disney revoked the rights to use the name Donald Duck, so now he's just called The Duck. I think they should just call him Puddles. I thought, I had thought his official name was Puddles this whole time. I'm still calling him Puddles. I don't care what anyone else says. No, they ditched Puddles a while back. I don't know why. Nah, he's Puddles the Duck, okay? <laughs> that, that's who he is. That's who he will always be. 
It's a puddles party. <laughs> Looky here! Anyway, things changed for Norm Van Brocklin after new coach Aiken was on board. He saw his talent right away. He was a kid who could hit an end in the ear, cut and crosswise from 50 yards. Uh, Glickman became friendly with Van Brocklin. I don't know who Glickman is. Must have been a player on the team. Oh, no, he was then a student at Oregon and campus correspondent for the Oregonian, keeping play-by-play for Don McLeod, etc., etc., etc. Anyway, I got a new star quarterback in Norm Van Brocklin. You know, it's really weird. Norman Van Brocklin, this guy, I first, like, heard of him. He first came onto my radar when SB Nation put out that uh, History of the Atlanta Falcons uh, series. And I was like, oh, this is an interesting guy, like the Archie Bunker of the NFL. You hadn't heard of him before? I hadn't. Somehow I hadn't. Or maybe, I mean, I probably had at some point. Like, oh, yeah, he used to be a great quarterback in Oregon. But, like, it just goes in your head and out. You know what I mean? just heard about a good quarterback in Oregon. He was like, nah, that can't be right. (laughs) Probably, yes. But, like, it's weird how many jobs this guy has had in football and how many things he's touched. So I think what most people know him for is playing in the NFL, right? That was, like, the last piece of the Norm Van Brocklin puzzle that I uh, found. I first heard about him coaching in the NFL. Then I learned about his stint with the Ducks. And then I was like, oh, he was a star player in the NFL. It's, like, completely backwards. Uh, who did he play for in the NFL? I forget now. Played for the Rams. Okay. And the Eagles, briefly. Let's see here. Yeah, late 40s, uh, with, uh, especially with Van Brocklin, the Ducks were pretty good again, actually. Um, it's funny, o- Oregon State dominated the uh, first half of the 40s, and then it flipped. Oh, there was some kind of... Okay, that's that's where I was uh, a little confused here. Um, in the event of a... Uh, so, the following Monday, after the 1948 Civil War, in which... Um, Oregon won, news came over the teletype that the PCC's 10 faculty reps had voted for California to represent the conference in the Rose Bowl, and the Bears would go on to lose 20-14. to In the event of a 5-5 vote, the team that had been to the Rose Bowl last was eliminated. Cal had played in the 1938 game, and Oregon hadn't been since 1920. The results of the vote were not announced, but it was widely believed the 6-4 vote was for Cal, with Oregon State, Washington State, and Idaho joining Oregon to vote for the Ducks. The word was that Washington and Montana voted with the Southern schools. The old times have never forgiven the Huskies for that. So I guess Washington voted for California. I don't know. <laughs> uh, if the Northwest had stuck together, the Ducks would have gone to the Rose Bowl, but instead the Bears went. Speaking of an Oregon club luncheon that day, Aiken cracked. I'm from West Virginia, and down there we never forget a favor or a slight. Van Brocklin attending the luncheon broke down and cried. I think our team has been slighted, he said. Wow. I don't know. <laughs> really? You cried because you didn't get it? Okay. Well, that that kind of fits with the ducks, so. Ducks are the ducks. Uh, that day in Berkeley, thousands of students paraded the street, bringing out all available police and firemen. Bonfires flared on street corners and jubilant students crowded the streets. At a campus rally in Eugene, more than 4,000 students paid tribute to the ducks after learning they didn't get the bid. The PCC breaking tradition. Okay. So what happened was Oregon, they don't get sent to the Rose Bowl until they just throw a stink. They whine. They whine as loud as they can. And so the PCC, the conference breaks tradition and authorizes them to go to another bowl. It's like, fine, fine. Come on. Uh, one promoter was trying to arrange a December 18th Oregon-Oklahoma game at the Coliseum. Eventually, Harris accepted a bid to play Southwest Conference Championship Southern Methodist in the Cotton Bowl. It was the first... <laughs> Doesn't... Will anybody please play the Ducks? Does anyone want to play the Ducks? Anyone at all? Anyone? 
Oh, fine. We played them last time. We'll do it. I don't know. <laughs> Folks, this is Phil Harris again. Tonight, I'm leaving on the lark for Eugene, Oregon, to be master of ceremonies at a banquet in honor of Coach Jim Aiken and that great University of Oregon football team. The entire West is proud of them, and it'll be a big thrill to give them a real send-off for their New Year's Day date at the Cotton Bowl with SMU. Also, congratulations to the University of California at Berkeley and Southwest... Uh, Northwestern. Don't you ever get anything right? Look, I don't want to brag, sister, but last week I was the first one in the country to congratulate USC. Anyway, they went to the Cotton Bowl, and SMU beat them, uh, 21-13. Good afternoon, everyone everywhere. This is the old Scotsman, Gordon McClendon. And here at Dallas, Texas this afternoon in the Cotton Bowl, more than 70,000 people have come out to see the Oregon Webbeat, co-champions of the Pacific Coast Conference, tangle with the champion SMU Mustangs of the Southwest Conference in one of football's greatest shows, the Cotton Bowl. From the web foot 36, Kyle Roach takes the ball, fakes to Walker, booms down the middle, shakes off two Oregon men beautifully, Roach going, going, gone Goslin, or should we say, gone Duck. SMU 21, Oregon 13 now, and that's the way it ends, as the Ducks forgot to duck just once too often. Van Brocklefield threw for 145 yards, etc., etc. Mustang's biggest weapon that day was quick kicks. Blah, blah, blah. It was the end of the Van Brocklin era at Oregon. He completed his academic requirements that summer, was picked fourth in the draft by Los Angeles, and went on to a Hall of Fame career. We were disappointed that he left, but he made the right move at the time, Sanders said. He started out with a $17,000 contract with the Rams. Big money in those days, etc., etc. Oregon's postseason banquet, Aikman spoke bravely. We'd love to have Fan back, but everyone can be replaced, even the school president. Within a year, President Harry Newburn was replaced. Aiken didn't last much longer either. Found to have violated the PCC's academic code and rules for financial aid and athletic subsidies, he was forced to resign after the 1950 season. Chip Kelly, anyone? Chip Kelly, are you in the house? Chip? So there, there has been a, ducks, man. a repeated theme. I'm beginning to notice some patterns here. <laughs> uh, anyway, he was forced to resign after 1950. Lynn Casanova was hired to replace him, and a new era in Oregon football had begun. All right, I think we'll end it here. Um, <clears throat> 1949 is the end point here. The Ducks are the Ducks. The Ducks have always been the Ducks. What have we learned today, kids? Repeat after me. The Ducks gonna duck. All right. I think that's good for now. I, I'm hoping, I think next week, or next time we do this, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, I feel like. Yeah, right up to the Bellotti era, the Bellotti Mike Riley era. I think we can, uh, I think we can do it, man. We'll pull within my life. To, we're going to end at the beginning of my lifetime next time on West Bros. It's going to be thrilling stuff, folks. Thrilling stuff. Any, uh, postscript, uh, addendums, McLean? Uh, no, I think that's, I think that's it. <coughs> except, uh, McLean has checked out so guts. hard. He doesn't care. McLean does, McLean does not care. Yeah, yeah. Well, once we get to get to the modern era, I think I'll have more takes. <laughs> McLean's takes are few and far between right now. It's actually kind of sad. I was expecting a lot more from McLean. This is his subject. This is his topic. I'm, I'm but, hoarding uh, my takes. McLean's more of a, you know, he, he we respect him, all right? He's a, he's a brilliant Westboro's professor. He's taught important classes on, on Mountain Dew thank and you, uh, King you. Spud. No, those are all fantastic activities. But this time, you know, sometimes the teacher has to be a student. You got to learn a little bit. That's you know true. what I mean? That's true. 
And yeah. boy, have I learned. <laughs> on that note, we'll see you all out there next time, folks. Keep uh, on stay ducking. safe out there. Don't hey, don't get ducked. Be careful. Keep keep your head on the swivel, man. Dangerous stuff. Buckle down, men, Saki, buckle down. You can win, men, Saki, if you buckle down. If you break their necks, if you make them wrecks, you can break the hex, so buckle down. Make them yell, win, Saki, make them yell. You can win, win, Saki, if you give them hell. If you don't give in, take it on the chin, you are bound to win if you will only buckle down. If you bite, you'll chuckle at the